This is the Good Things Guy podcast with myself, Brendan DeCube, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. I'm on a mission to change what the world pays attention to. I truly believe that there's good news all around us, and I spend my time hunting down and reporting on the best good news stories from South Africa and the world. In the Good Things Guy podcast, you'll meet these everyday heroes and hear their incredible stories. He's a three-time stage four brain cancer survivor who overcame all the odds of beating cancer, while at the same time competing in some of the world's toughest endurance events, including six Ironman triathlons in that time. That might be more by now. I've taken this info directly off of his site. I just don't know. Can't keep up with him. He's an expert on the power of the brain, change management, authenticity, and understanding how to overcome literally everything. A very different speaker, a fantastic South African who I've followed for an incredibly long time. And he's joined us today, finally, on the Good Things Guy jackpot. Richard Wright, it is incredible to have you in studio. Thank you so much for having me and a massive privilege. Uh, And finally, yes, I actually get to meet you and after all the interaction and watching you from afar and the incredible things that you're up to. So what a privilege for me to be here. Thank you. Isn't it just the crazy way that social media has made globalization real, but also brought straight together we can literally follow each other's lives and kind of feel like we know each other when I know nothing about you I know what <laughs> I see online yes for sure uh, well I think part of it is and I think that's something I'd love to say about you is that your authenticity shines through so I had no I was under no illusion of who I was going to meet face to face and you're exactly how I would imagine you and that's quite something because social media can be that it can be the highlights highlights package of the highlights package in many ways Uh, and I think that's what I try and strive to do is not to do that so uh, I share a lot about my journey authentically and as vulnerably as possible and it's been amazing how South Africans and people all over the globe have given back to me as authentically and when you're willing to share and bear yourself out there it's just incredible what comes back. So we're going to get into your journey now because obviously cancer has been a big part of I don't want to say your book but a couple of chapters mm. it's taken up a couple of chapters but you're you're an incredibly inspirational guy if people follow you on social media uh, whether it is your Twitter or the YouTube videos that you put up it's super inspirational have you always been that guy? Wow. Thank you. That's a huge compliment. I had a swimming school for 14 years and I've always been in some kind of position where I try and have a positive impact on other people's lives. So whether it's coaching swimming, triathlon, working with kids, uh, which in real estate for a very long time, but, but coaching and training in real estate, that's kind of who I am. I think I get a kick out of helping other people. It's huge for me. So I guess that's also a pretty, pretty selfish endeavor. But that is what it is. It's the joy of giving, that when we give to other people, we, we get so much more in return. So I, I don't think it's always intentional, but what I do like is to put something out there and then sort of talk about it in a way that can perhaps help other people with similar struggles or going through similar things. So although I get billed quite often as a motivational speaker or an inspirational speaker, I don't really like that. I prefer to be called a transformative storyteller. If I can tell my story in a way that's going to help other people to transform their lives and if I can make a difference, even if it's minute, well, happy feels for days. One of the videos, and I think it's when I first started following you, I'm not sure when that was. I, I was trying to piece I can it together. Tell you when that was. It was almost two years ago exactly. Really? That, it was a video that you shared. Um, I was on the beach in Bloberg and I'd entered Ironman Wales. And the reason I entered Ironman Wales was because they're two of the toughest Ironman races on this planet are Ironman Lanzarote and Ironman Wales. And Ironman Lanzarote is extremely tough and hard, but it's hot. 
and I love heat. I love racing in the heat. So I thought, okay, we're not going to do that one. And Ironman Wales was the opposite. And I happened to be there on the worst day they've ever had. It was like Armageddon all over again. But I sat on the beach, or I stood on the beach after a little run in Bloberg, and I recorded a little video that said, stuff it, I'm going to Wales. Forget the fact that I've got cancer. Forget the fact that I'm really struggling right now. I haven't been able to train. The concept I have in life is that a DNF is a lot better than a DNS. And, and for those of you that might not understand, a DNF for athletic results is it did not finish. And a DNS is it did not start. And it did not start, uh, the name's right at the bottom of the results. And those are the people that entered the race, but for whatever reason, just didn't get to the start line. And most of that is purely because... I'm not going to do the race because I'm not well enough prepared. I didn't train enough. I didn't do enough. I haven't fulfilled my expectations. So because of that, I'm not going to go and do it. Um, and that really messes with your brain in a lot of ways. But to me, it pitch up, get to the start line and just start. And if you don't finish, that's okay. But invariably we do. So that's when it was. And you shared that. The South African going to Wales to go and compete in the Ironman with cancer. Well, th- that's why, right? Because a lot of people who are fighting cancer, it's debilitating. And it's, it's incredibly difficult to even get up in the morning. And then I can take that a step back and I can go, a lot of people who are healthy, it's very difficult to get up in the morning. And here you have someone who's literally fighting this cancer. You're taking medication and yet you're going, I'm going to do it. Stuff it. I actually, I don't know what tomorrow brings. And I love endurance events. And this is one that I want to complete. So I'm going to go do it. And when I saw the video, it made me want to get up and do more. So did you, Brent? I think I did. Great. I, I, I mean, it was two years ago, and I think I've done quite a bit. Since, uh, I don't know. I, I was meaning the Iron Man, though. You, you didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> no, no, no. So, so that's exactly what it is for me. That little video, just even that day when you saw it, if you, it changed something in your brain that made you do something a little bit differently, bam, sharing a story is worth it. So let me just say something about that Iron Man. And I've been unfriended and unfollowed by some people who who are struggling with similar cancer to me. And they're saying, your story is just, I can't relate. I'm batting to you out of bed and here you're doing these things. And actually, it's not a story that actually I feel worse than better and I, I can't have you in my face. So when I speak, one of the first things I say to people is, I don't expect you to be able to relate to the cancer. Number one. And number two, I don't expect you when life hands you lemons or something really drastic happens in your life that you're going to go and enter an Ironman now. That's not what it's about. Every single one of us have cancers. And that could be negativity. It could be fear. It could be your past. Any number of things. And you can choose to feed those things or you can choose to figure out which of those you can actually change. And if you can change them, well, go ahead and do it. And if you can't, sure, I've got a tattoo on my left shoulder, right shoulder, which is Amor Fati. It's Latin for love your fate or embrace your fate. It's from Friedrich Nietzsche. Because your fate is, is your life. That is what it is. And, and the minute you can embrace it, things change for you. So I had to make friends with cancer. And I guess the concept is if I die, you die. And maybe you don't want that. I don't know. So let's try and keep both of us alive. Sure. Um, but that's hard. It's hard. So even getting out of the bed, you're right. So I actually posted a video yesterday. I went for a ride in the cradle, and it was fantastic. It was a gorgeous day in the cradle just outside of Johannesburg, and beautiful day. And I stopped, and I recorded a video, and, and in the cradle of, of humankind, because that is something I don't think we recognize all the time, is that we are one of seven, arguably seven homo species, and the only one to survive. And Darwin said it, that only the species that are the most adaptable to change are the ones that are going to survive and thrive. And we are here on this planet because we are the most adaptable to change. But yet the minute change hits us, our first response is victim. Fear. 
fear and being a victim. And that is part of the reason why we're still on the planet because our, our response is a healthy one. It's like WTF, what, what hit me on my comfort zone. But it's what you do next that counts. So I might have stage four brain cancer, but I'm not a victim of cancer. You see, on the day I get diagnosed, I'm a true victim. I am a victim of this thing. On the day you get divorced, on the day somebody that you really love leaves this planet, any number of things that hit you, on that day that that thing happened, you are a true victim of whatever it is. The day after it, I'm Richard who has cancer, or I'm Richard who still chooses to be a victim of cancer. And that's a choice. It's the wolf you feed. It's the wolf you Correct. feed. Correct. Yeah. And law of attraction. Whatever, yeah. whatever you think you're going to attract more of. Speak to me about that first diagnosis. You talk about the day, sure. you know, you're a three-time stage four brain cancer survivor. When was the first? Before I go to the first, I love the fact that you highlight that. And that's for that reason I put it on all the social media. So I've only been in remission twice. But yet I am a three-times brain cancer survivor. And I think that, again, is the mindset. If you have cancer, if you have some kind of disease or something happens to you, you've only survived it once you are in remission. So on the day I'm in remission, I've survived stage four brain cancer. Well, no, here we are chatting. Clearly, I'm surviving. Yes. I don't have to be in remission to survive this thing. On the day cancer gets me, I die from cancer. I'm no longer living and I'm no longer a cancer survivor, but then I'm dead and it doesn't matter. Until that point, I get to live either as a survivor or not. So in my journey, it's been... Over three years, it's been incredibly hard to witness people, especially when I go into Santa Oncology and I've got a drip in my arm and, and getting chemo. And you look at the people coming through the door and you can identify immediately those that are cancer survivors and those that are cancer victims. And it's just in the de demeanor, it's in the eyes. And it doesn't mean that every single person who's a cancer survivor, who lives like one, is going to survive the disease. It's a horrible, disgusting disease. It takes even the strongest. But every single one of those people will, will have a better quality of life. They will live longer. They'll confound the doctors. And they'll do things that people who are victims are not going to do. But it's hard to get there. So that first prognosis was incredibly tough for me. Talk to me about the lead up to it. So you're healthy, you're fit, you're endurance eventing, you're all these. I mean, you speak about owning a swimming school 14 years ago. You've always yeah. been incredibly active. And when I look at you today, you look pretty damn fit. So you've, you've been good to your body, I would assume. So, so that's the hard part is I have. I, I've lived a, a, a good life from a health point of view. I've never been overweight. I've never been into bad foods. I've never drank excessively, although, you know, what is excessive drinking? Anyway, we can debate that one. I've never <laughs> done the drugs and the smoking and things like that. So I, I think I've lived really clean and well. And I've done really well at endurance triathlon. So I've won age groups. I've been the first amateur across the line, top 16 overall in, in Ironman South Africa. And then I couldn't train. I really battled to train. I went through this stage where I realized I'm not so strong after all. And there's something really wrong. I'd been diagnosed with a tumor on my pituitary gland back in 2004 when we were trying to fall pregnant. But it was benign, non-cancerous, and we were able to control it with medication. And that was a 12-year journey. But at that point in time, 2015, I knew there was something dramatically wrong. But I was still determined I was going to go and do this Ironman the next year. So with very, very little training, um, I was determined. And... A couple of weeks before, I went to go and see my neurosurgeon, and we did another MRI, and we found out that this tumor had increased dramatically in size. It was no longer a microadenoma, it was a macroadenoma, and it was non-responsive to the medication. And that was the first time we had a conversation about cancer. But it was a kind of a, I'm sure it can't be, 
because if it is, it's an incredibly, incredibly rare form of cancer, no known cause, and you certainly are not the demographic to get this thing. So, so yeah, but I'm not quite sure what else it can be. Um, and I went to go and do the race anyway, despite his request that I don't. But I know my body quite well, and I've, you know, we're good friends. So I finished the race. It was long as hard. It was a real mental exercise, but so empowering to do it. And, and that's part of my journey through cancer and trying to do endurance events is we do hard things because it enables us to do harder things. And that's the power of the brain. And when you, when you learn to unlock that. And, I, I, need, I need you to repeat that because that's such an amazing statement. We do hard things. Because it enables us to do harder things. Yeah. Every single time. Say you get up and you go, you go for a walk around the block. Just that getting up at half past four and it's dark and nobody else is around. That feeling of empowerment that you get from that thing. That was hard to do. It was hard to do. It's easy to do the next day. And the next day you're going to push a little bit further. And you're going to, so what you're doing is you, you are essentially empowering your brain to do harder and harder things. And let's be honest, nothing in this life that was substantial, something that you look back and you, you're proud about your achievement or success, was ever achieved because it was easy. But yet somehow, we look at our lives and we kind of expect that it should be easy. And then when they're not, it's kind of, who hit me on my comfort zone? You know, yeah. what happened there? So I knew that five days after the race, I was booked in for a lumbar puncture. You can't determine brain cancer from a blood test because of the blood-brain barrier. But I was pretty confident that, okay, okay yes, it was an extremely hard Ironman and I was battling with the training, but still surely not cancer, not me. And we rushed the results through and the surgeon had already booked a theater because in his words, if it is cancer, it's extremely aggressive. Uh, we don't even know if it's a primary source of cancer and we need to try and get rid of it as soon as possible. And I did the stupidest thing, but the na most natural thing you could ever do is I went to Dr. Google. And mm. I think that's what we do. And whenever we think there's something wrong, we're not quite sure what it is. We say, hey, Google, please tell me, am I going to die? And yeah, I've got this, this, this and this. What could it be? And it generally is possibly the worst death. outcome. It's always going to be death. It's always going to be death. <laughs> <laughs> because, because remember, the internet rewards the things that K are the most spectacular. Cake or death. Cake or death. Yeah, death. Exactly. <laughs> so it was. It was like, oh, my goodness. And and not point not. 2% 2% of all pituitary tumors become cancerous. So it's freaky rare. And then I looked at the survival rate and just nobody survives this thing. In fact, most of it is discovered in autopsy. So like, no, this can't be me. Surely not. And the results came back and it was cancer. And the good thing about that, it happened so suddenly. It was, it was I took an Uber in to go and have the lumbar puncture because I knew I wasn't going to be able to drive home. I hadn't really said anything to anybody. And then I sat there and, okay, well, what am I going to do now? I'm going to tell people? Am I, am I just going to go into theater? Or, or, I didn't even tell my parents. It was that kind of a, how do I do that now? How do I, I'm batting to even process this. How do I now spring this on somebody else? And, and I regret that. And my mom still makes me regret it to this day. It was a bad decision. But that's how much of a surprise it was. And when I came to, uh, when the, the surgeon came to see me much later that evening, I only had one question for him. And that was, did you get it all? That's all I want to know. And his words were amazing. So I had transfernoidal surgery. They're going through your nose and, and drill into the brain. It was great. You know, it was great. So, well, I didn't have to have that chainsaw massacre yeah. scar. Maybe it would be quite spectacular, but I'm very glad I don't have that. And Just um, to explain, Richard is, has got no hair. So yeah, exactly. you would, there would be a great – or you'd tattoo it. I'm sure there would be some sort of tattoo to go. I'll never, ever forget seeing that picture on the internet. I'm sure you've seen it. Is that that little boy who got brain cancer and who had exactly that, that mm. huge big scar – 
and his dad went and shaved all his hair off and got a tattoo exactly so. like his son. Um, and unfortunately, his son has passed away since then. But that to me was just the most remarkable thing. So I don't have that, which I'm very grateful for. But the answer from the surgeon was amazing. It was pretty confident we got it all. It was a lot more intricate than we expected. It was bigger than we expected. And we had to take it out in tiny little pieces from the inside out. But I'm pretty confident we got it all. And then I, I had this plaster on my stomach. And I was, you know, what happened? There's quite a long way to go from the stomach to the brain. What was that about? And he said, no, what we do is we have to, you know, plug the hole because we now drill up into your brain and we don't want you to leak brain fluid because, you know, you become more stupid or something. I don't know. So we take some fat from your stomach and we shove it up the holes to stop you from leaking brain fluid. And then the same question, Brent, was, did you get it all? The, the, the fat, you know, it's like, great. So now I kind of figure that, you know, <laughs> when it's winter time and I don't train so much and I get a bit of a muffin top, it's not, it's not new fat. It's just the old fat that's kind of <laughs> draining down from my brain. That's what that is. But it was, it was such an empowering thing. It was like, ah, oh, Iron Man won cancer null, you know. About six weeks after that, I had to go for radiation. It was a planned 30 treatment radiation plan. And the reason for that was to make sure that they got all the cancer, wasn't going to come back. And more than anything else, just to make sure. And at that point, they still weren't sure if this was a primary cancer or secondary cancer, a bit of metastasized. So in going through the radiation on week three, we did an MRI just to make sure they're hitting the right spot. And at that time, you always know when uh, so there's a thing I've written quite a lot about it called scanxiety. Is that anxiety you have when you have scans or anything, blood tests done, or even when we go in for discovery or have to have that AIDS test or whatever e it is. Every single, so I'm so safe and I'm like sexually safe and I know, I know my partner, like I know my history and I know how my year's been. I'm, yes. I'm good. Everything's good. And I might have had an injection for something, whatever, but I saw them take the needle I, out of that sterile you know, little thing. I'm and, good. Yeah. And then I go at the beginning of the year for that discovery test, and I have that scanxiety. Anxiety. It's, it's, it's the worst thing ever. I do say to the nurse always, please do my blood pressure afterwards, <laughs> because before it's going to be the wrong thing. Exactly. Let's just do it afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, I get what you're saying. No, it's terrific. Especially if you go on a Friday, and then it's like a weekend, and ah, oh, and... You always know when you get a, a phone call from the receptionist or one of the oncology nurses and they give you the results over the phone, oh, it's great. Mm. But when they phone you and um, say, oh. please come in and see the specialist, at that point in time, you already know. So I was called in and just looking at the oncologist's face, it was, it was enough for me to know there was something drastically wrong. And at that point in time, I was told it's spread already to the underside of your brain, to the left ventricle. It's spread to the, the other side of the pituitary. And I was told I had six months. And I made the mistake, and don't ever do this, if you have something that you think is traumatic and drastic, and it's going to be really hard to hear, take somebody with you. Because what happens is that the minute you hear something that's really bad, you, you switch off. You don't listen to anything else. And to have somebody else who's in the room with you and you, you can relay back what that doctor actually said after all of that is invaluable. In fact, get them to record it on a phone. But that was, that was one of the biggest moments of my life without a doubt. And how do you process that? So I got immediately angry and it was, you know, it's such a rare cancer that it's not even graded. There's no research in it. There's no actual, there are no drugs for it just because it's, it's too rare for them to even do a clinical trial. Was your anger directed at someone specific, something, some force, the universe? Was it, did, no, it was, was him. It just... He was right in front of me. Who else? <laughs> I'm like, hello, it's you. At that point in time it was, and it was, how dare you? How dare you 
Tell me how long I've got. How dare you? Where did that even come from? And what is that anyway? Explain to me how you get to six months. And I know it's the 50% mean of 50% of the people make it longer and 50% don't. And that's where it is. But I'm not average. And all of my specialists have told me throughout this whole journey, if we could pick one person who's probably least likely to get it, it would probably be you. But if we could pick one person who's probably most likely to survive it, it would also be you. And it's like, well, that doesn't really help me, does it now? So there was a lot of anger. And then how do you process that? And immediately you become a victim. And how can you not? You do. And then I'm pretty hardcore. I've been through some pretty hardcore things. I push my body. I push myself, push my mind. The next couple of weeks were taken up with, all right, I'm going to fight this thing. I'm now going to become the ultimate cancer warrior. My entire life became about beating cancer. But the problem with that is cancer owns you. Mm. So you become your identity becomes the thing, the obstacle that you're trying to overcome which is quite an important thing about obstacles. Mark Twain said this, and I'm going to misquote him, but, but the concept you'll get, or at least the quote is attributed to him. He said, I've suffered some terrible things in my life, some of which have actually happened. And that is so true. We've got this idea of all these obstacles that we have in our lives, and we focus on the obstacles, and we focus so much on that thing, and we worry, and we have anxiety about these things. And how many of those things are actually really relevant? And I like to say that the obstacle is the thing that you see when you take your eyes off the goal. When you're focusing on the obstacle, you can't actually see the goal. And But when you're just focusing on that thing. So I went through a bit of an identity crisis. I really did. And I think one of the gifts of cancer, and I freely talk about the gifts of cancer because it's, it's changed my life uh, remarkably, is the authenticity that comes along with it. When you're told you're dying, you couldn't give a hoot about what anybody thinks about you. And if you think about it, we spend so much of our lives trying to become what we think the world needs us to be, to fit in, to get the job, to get the promotion, to live where we want to live, to attract the perfect partner. And yet we spend so much of our time trying to find that one person who sees through all that bulldust and loves us for who we are anyway. And that's, that's kind of messed up, isn't it? But then when you realize that you don't have to be anything for anybody anymore, who am I now? Who <sighs> the hell am I? So I started an identity tattoo on my, my right arm, I am. Because the, you know, the two most powerful words in the English dictionary are I am. Because whatever follows determines who you are. I think, therefore, I become. I think, therefore, I am or I am, therefore, I... There we go. Which one of those two? <laughs> and then, what was it, Scooby-Doo who said, um, do-be-do-be-do <laughs> after that, I am because I do, I do because I am, whatever. So, but that is it. So that, that whole seeking for meaning and who am I? And it was an amazing, amazing journey of, of trying to figure out who I am. And I had to embrace the things that... I didn't like before because we spent so much of our lives trying to avoid the traits, the human traits that we, you know, I'm not that, but yet you are. You, you're this glorious mix, conglomeration of every single amazing and horrible human, that's the yin and the yang of human trait out there. You just get to choose which ones you want to be. And that's quite important. But throughout that struggle, I'll never forget this. And this is the real watershed moment between me understanding that I was a victim of cancer, even though I thought I was a cancer warrior. And becoming something else, becoming a survivor. I picked up my two girls from aftercare. I've got them one week and their mom has them one week. And, and on the weeks when I had them, they were the best for me going through some really tough times. Even now, you just have to put your big boy brooks on and pretend that life is great. And that was hard, but it was good for me. And I picked them up from aftercare. And it was the seventh week of, of radiation when they found out that uh, the cancer was back. They added on some radiation as much as I could have, and they ramped up the amount I was getting. And, and it was torturous. So there's this swelling going on inside your brain, and you can't go anywhere because, you know, it's in your brain. Uh, there's nowhere for it to swell to. And it, it was a really, really tough time. But I picked the girls up, and McKinnon, my eldest, said to me, and she was 10 at the time, she said to me, Daddy, I'm really sorry, but I've got this project that's due for tomorrow. 
And all the parents listening to this out there are going to understand that there's a problem with the terminology there because a project is not the thing that the teacher gives you the day for tomorrow. <laughs> so that's called homework. <laughs> a project is the stuff that you get like two weeks ago for. Yes. So I said to Bag, when, you know, when did you get? No, I'm really sorry, Dad. But, you know, so I said, okay, what is it? And she said, no, it's the, um, we've got to put the solar system together. <laughs> <laughs> it's that project where you've got to get the polystyrene balls. Yeah, the, the big one. Yes. And then you've got to paint them all and measure them all out. And it's the one that the parents do for the kids. And then they hand it to the kid you know, on the morning and said, don't bump that before you hand it in because it's a masterpiece. And then the minute your kid comes out from school and you don't even say, hello, how, how are you? How was your day? Did you have enough lunch? Who did you talk to at lunch? I was, what did I get from a project? <laughs> <laughs> the teacher hasn't marked them yet. Okay, every single day you ask that. And then when you get the mark, it's like 18 out of 20. It's like, Sorry? 18 out of 20. I feel that like that was a 21 out of 20. Did you get that? Did anybody in class, and you ask this question, did anybody else in class get more than that? Yes. Johnny got more than that. <gasps> I know Johnny's mom and Johnny's dad. There's no way that they were capable. <laughs> That's what it was. It was that thing. So off we go. And I'm slumped over the steering wheel waiting for a, a robot to change, to go to a craft shop to go and get this stuff. And I'm really taking strain. And this little voice pops up in the back of the car, and it's McKinnon. And she says to me, Daddy, are you okay? And I said to her, sure, bug, um, I'm really not feeling great. I just need to get this thing done, go home, lie down for a bit, and then we'll get it done. I'm probably not going to cook for you tonight, but, you know, let's just get it done. I'm going to be fine. Silence for a bit. And then the voice pops up, and she says, Daddy, nobody said it would be easy. And I whipped around. It was like, what? Where on earth did that come from? Where did you hear that from? Did your mom tell you that? Did somebody else tell you that? Because you've never heard that from me. And she got so defensive. And she said, but daddy, I don't actually know what else to say. And that's 10, ten, ten years old. 10 years old. And number one, I've never forgiven her for that. <laughs> um, but I've embraced it because it's um, now, every single time she's writing exams at the moment. And um, the other day, she said, oh, this is really hard. This is, she's battling with the studying. And I was like, oh, bug, I'm so sorry. Nobody said it was going to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> so she hates me for that. But it was the kick that I needed to actually say, Richard, if you're going to continue this way, cancer is going to beat your ass. And if you're going to beat it, you have to beat it in your head first. So brain cancer, but you've got to beat it in your brain. And the very next day, I put on a pair of running shoes and decided if I could walk around the block, that was enough. Just to get up and get out there was going to change my thinking towards what I had. Because I think that's the biggest thing. Immediately you get cancer. And you hear about cancer, you immediately think death sentence, you immediately think the worst. It's, it's an incredibly hard thing to deal with. The depression that comes along with it is debilitating, but you can't really deal with the depression because you're trying to beat this physical ailment. It's incredibly hard, and so much of that is mental, as is any other challenge that any of us face in our life. So how do we overcome that stuff? And you've got to beat it in your head first. I choked up there a little bit because I feel like I don't know you, and I've followed you on social media and I followed this journey and I really thought I knew your story and it's so complex um, everything that you've gone through the last couple of years and I got to catch you on the tail end of this inspirational guy on Bloberg Beach talking about how he's going to go get what he wants because he wants it but you're saying it's here it's all in the head you've got to overcome these challenges first here and then you can put the shoes on and start walking that's exactly right and I think part of the problem is that so every single one of us, you included, all of us, we all want change in our lives. We all, whether that's betterment of who we are, we want to become a better version of ourselves, just good things. You know, that's what we want. So whether it's that, whether we want a promotion, whether we're finishing school, whether we, it's exams, it doesn't matter what it is, we all want to change something about our lives. But yet change management 
within our own heads is probably one of the things we're worst at. And the reason for that is we try and change our lives through trying to change our behavior. So exactly the way you started, and I love the story, you're at a, a traffic intersection and you roll down the door and you handed something out of your car to somebody. And it was amazing. You don't keep up that behavior if you're trying to, to do it from an action point of view. You can only keep up that behavior if something changes inside you and how you think about who you are and the world around you and those that don't have. And it's how you think about it that's going to make a difference. So here's a good example. So I go for a full year exercise list. For 365 days, zero exercise. And on one particular day of the year, I decide I'm going to change my entire life because now I'm going to exercise. And that's normally the 1st of January. Right? <laughs> yes? <laughs> yeah. Really. That's pretty. Uh, New Year's resolution, it's on the list. Get healthier. Yeah, there we go. Go to gym. Absolutely. And maybe not the 1st of January. You're a little no, bit but wrong. but it's not. You see, it's, it's the 2nd of January. Exactly. So I was going to say that. Do you get up on the 1st of January? Hell no. Why? It's a public holiday and I'm public. And, and you had a big party the night before. Us. Exactly, exactly. So I don't. But the second day, the long clock goes off and I'm gung-ho. I don't even hit snooze. I put on my brand new gym kit. And it's brand new. Why? Because I told all my friends and family, hey, everybody, I'm changing my life. And it's all matched. It's yes. turquoise and turquoise oh, and turquoise shoes and turquoise I, bottle. It's and branded. It's fabulous. I feel fabulous. Off I go to the gym. I have a fabulous session. And you know why? Because I'm fresh. I've done nothing for a year. <laughs> but I probably go a little bit too hard you know, in my exuberance because here I am. And at some point in time in that session, I look at myself in one of the, the many mirrors around the gym. And I, I, look, at my, I look at myself and I think, geez, this is, this is actually really cool. Why didn't I do this before? I really do. But I go home. The alarm goes off the next morning. And the first thought in my head is, geez, I don't remember doing butt exercises, but my butt hurts so bad. <laughs> you know, what the hell happened? But I'm still gung-ho because, you know, I'm fresh. It's only day number two. I put on my second brand new kit because I got enough for two kits. Now we got orange, orange, <laughs> orange, and orange. <laughs> I don't stand out at the gym at all, do I? <laughs> um, and I hit the gym. It's not quite as nice. Now I'm starting to think, to myself, wow, this is hard. This is actually quite hard. It's only day two is hard. And I make the mistake of weighing myself mm. you know, after the session because, you know, surely I've done two days. I must, I must have lost a kilogram. I must have lost a lot. But I've put on. Because now, you know, my body's not used to this and the blood is trying to rush into the areas to try and repair the damage I've done. I actually put on weight. Now my head is like, oh my goodness, I'm mind blown. If, I'm going to gym to lose weight and I'm putting on weight. If I come back tomorrow, I'm going to be fatter, I'm going to be sore and I'm just going to be unhappy. I've set myself up for failure because I, I haven't changed anything in terms of my thinking. It's pure behavior. Day number three. Long clock goes off. First thought through my head is, geez, the bus must have hit me. A train must have hit me. Everything hurts. I hit the snooze button because now it's getting hard, right? And also, I don't have an outfit. <laughs> no, there's no more outfit. Now I'm putting on the crappy stuff that I wore more than a year ago. And it's so hard to get out of bed. So I think to myself, no, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to pack my gym stuff into a bag. I'm going to put it in the boot of my car. And on the way home from work, I'm going to swing past the gym. You're shaking your head. Exactly. I'm going, it's never going to happen. Never going to happen. By the end of the day, you are exhausted because you've used all of your brain cells to do your work. And your body's still and sore from day one. And your belly's swelling up now because it's been more 38 hours. So now you say you do this. Now, again, this is what we do. We bargain with ourselves. You say, Brent, what we're going to do, we're not going to go now. But tomorrow morning, we're going to get up. We're going to do a double session. We're not missing out. <laughs> we're going to do double. Richard, Catch I feel up. like you're literally writing my New Year's, like day two, three, four, and five. It's, this is a story that's, that's been written. That's what it is. And it's the same for all of us. We all like that. But this is how, it doesn't matter whether it's gym or something else, this is what happens when we try and change our lives through our behavior. And so day four, what happens is we don't go because now double session is too much. Day five, we wake up and this is what we say to ourselves. Go for it. Day five, I'm, I'll do it tomorrow. No. 
What is day five? No, no, day five is I've already skipped two days now. So actually, it's just right this week off. I'm going to start again on Monday. And the next thing you know, it's December. <laughs> and that brand new kit has been used five times. So that's what it is. And until you can change the thoughts in your head, you're never going to change anything substantial in your life. So your journey with cancer and relating this to Jim, it makes it easier to understand. But how do we take that Mm-hmm. that you've just said and your journey and what you've been through and what you're still going through and how do we apply that to like the current narrative in South Africa and I know crime is atrocious yeah and I know that um, we've had really bad leadership with our we can just mention the name Zuma and we all understand what we had to put up with for years mm-hmm. but how do we change the narrative that we've created for the last 30 years where we can sit around a table and completely put our country down and never see anything good about it right how do we start i I love that question how do we start to change the way that we see where we live and this place that we call home to try and and be a little bit more positive about what is here currently we are here and we're living here so why are we not positive about where we are we are are survivors of absolutely everything that has ever happened to us in our lives right the fact that we live in south africa we are currently surviving that and tragically not everybody is but we are and you have a choice to live and celebrate that or not. So I love the question in many ways. So one of the things I often ask people is how many of you, talking to an audience, how many of you know somebody who packed up their entire lives, their cats, their dogs, their two and a half kids, their goldfish, and went off to any other country that would have them but South Africa? And and everybody in the room is going to put, put up their hands and say, yes, I know somebody or know somebody who knows somebody. And then the question I ask is, in the last year, how much has your life actually changed so much to the detriment that you wish that you'd packed up your kids, your cats, your goldfish into a container and shipped yourself off. It actually hasn't. And for some people, it might have. So let me tell you my story just very quickly. I went into remission the first time as only the 118th person on this planet to ever have survived a primary pituitary carcinoma, which is, is freaky. And I celebrated massively. And about two months after that, I went away for a weekend just to try and put myself back together again and repair some of the damage to me from cancer and I got back and I was I didn't have my girls so I was on my own and uh, I got back at about six o'clock about half past two quarter to three the next morning I was awoken by this noise and it didn't take long to figure out that it was the sound of people breaking into my house and I was held up in my house for two and a half hours three men with guns in my bedroom as they tried on my running shoes, my work clothes, you know, hey, what do you think I look like in this? Dude, you're going to run fast in those shoes. It was <laughs> horrific. And I'd canceled my short-term insurance because I was dying. Oh. And I hadn't reinstated that. So I watched all of this and thinking, I've got these medical bills. I've got no way of replacing any of this stuff. My work clothes were taken, every single pair of running shoes, all my plans, plans, tech. I was wiped out. And I sat there thinking, wow, I've survived you know, 118th person's planet, but I could die because people in my house. So I could choose again to live as a victim of armed robbery. I could have decided that South Africa wasn't it for me. But again, it's the thoughts that go through your head. It's what you choose to think and believe. So if you're reading all the news and you're on Facebook and you're engaging in people who are complaining and negative and you're just going to attract more of that same stuff. And what I say to people is, say you didn't have any access to any news whatsoever. How bad is your life? Your life is freaking amazing. Actually, in South Africa, we are still incredibly blessed. We're an amazing place to live. 
So that's number one. It, it's just what you feel your life with. What I talk about quite a lot is happiness, and happiness is a feeling. And the story I tell is that through a lot of my cancer journey, I was single. And that was excruciatingly hard. Times when my kids weren't with me, you wake up in the middle of the night and you're in a sweat and you're really battling and you're on your own and you just wish that there was something, something in the bed that was warm and you could reach out and it was just there. And that was really, really hard. So I kind of think, sure, I'll be happy if I can just find a girlfriend. How amazing would that be? You know, I could be so happy because women make everything better, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, Brent, stop giggling behind the mic. <laughs> so, no, but they really do. And then I found a girlfriend. She's absolutely amazing. Her name's Deborah. And I was so happy for a while because now I've got this girlfriend. But now she's in Port Elizabeth and I'm in Johannesburg. And if only she'd just moved to Johannesburg because she's there. And, and I would be happy if she would move to Johannesburg. And she's like, I'm not moving to Johannesburg because, you know, I, I need some kind of forever if I'm going to move there. And I was like, well, we've both been married before. How did forever work for you the last time? And then I proposed because that's kind of what she's expecting. And then she still doesn't want to move because she says, you know, she's not sure if I've got that Tinder profile and she doesn't know what's happening there. And maybe we should get married. And I'm like, really? Do, do we have to get married for us to be happy? She's like, yes. And then we get married and we're happy for a while and it's great. And then she says, you know, you, I've got my own little family with my kids and you've got yours with your kids. And I think for us to be deliriously happy, we need to have our own children. And I'm like, sorry? You want us to have a baby? And she says, yes, that would make me happy. I'm like, oh my goodness. Well, happy wife, happy life. And, you know, now we're trying to fall pregnant. And it's great in the beginning because we're practicing so much and it's fabulous. But now we're both on the wrong side of 45 or I am and she, she obviously isn't. <laughs> um, and now we're going to the Medfirm Clinic and it's Dr. Rodriguez and it's Fertility Clinic and it's, and it's ovulation tests. And, it's, and man, if we could just fall pregnant, we would be happy. And then finally we fall pregnant. And Brent, it's, it's the worst time in a man's life. It's so hard. <laughs> she's complaining. She's got cankles. She's only carrying one, but she's eating for 15. And I'm hearing sentences like anchovies and peanut butter in the same sentence. And, and everything's like moaning about everything. It's complaining, complaining. And then I say the following as a guy. I say to her, do you know how lucky you are? You've got like a nine-month head start on me. I'll never get to experience this growing this thing inside your stomach and whatever. And I bet you, as a guy, I bet you that if I was pregnant, I wouldn't moan like that. <laughs> like the worst thing I could possibly say. Yeah, all the listeners, all the, all the all the female <laughs> listeners are like, oh, what is it? I believe this guy up till this point. Up to this point. This is it. Trust and out then the window. Finally, we fall pregnant, and then it's like I don't remember when last I slept, and every, every, this baby puke and baby poo everywhere, and, and the baby's gone yellow because it's got jaundice, and and so our life goes on, until finally we look at this alien who's twenty four, twenty five, and we're like, if you could just leave the house. Be free. Go. Go. We then would be, happy. be happy. And then he leaves. She leaves. And I look at Deborah and I look at her. I'm like, I don't even know who you are anymore. If we could just get divorced, <laughs> I would be happy. <laughs> Do you get that? That's, that's how our life. Unfortunately, I have to stop you. Right. None of that is true. <laughs> I'm not the world's worst chauvinist. <laughs> But that is how we think. So Deborah and I, she's moving up in a week's time. She comes up to Johannesburg after two years of seeing each other, long distance, been the most incredible support. But we haven't had to get married, have a child, do any of those things to be happy. And, and we were on a beach in Port Elizabeth, Sardinia Bay, my favorite beach in the world. <laughs> and Deborah looked at me and she said to me, do you know, you talk a lot about happiness. Do you know what happiness is? Happiness is now. And she's 100% correct. So South Africans out there, happiness is not a destination. It's not new leadership. It's not solving the problems that are going to take a very long time to solve if, if some of them are ever solved. It's not holding on for that stuff. It's none of that stuff. Happiness is a feeling. Make a list of all the things that make you feel happy. Make a list of all the things you do in a day. Compare those two lists and adjust accordingly. Even in the days when I've truly felt like I'm not going to make it. Just to wake up in my house and my girls are in the same house as me, that's happiness right there. 
to wake them up and kiss them and, and snuggle them and say, I love you, that's happiness. Happiness is in anything and everything. It's not, I don't have to be in remission to be happy. I, I've got cancer and I was out in the, in, in the cradle yesterday cycling. So my message to South Africans is find that happiness and then once you've done that, spread it. I think we look at everybody else as a solution. I think that's what I like most about you, Brent, is your journey has been in spreading the good stuff out there to people who don't have it and don't feel it. And that's remarkable. So if you want to make a difference, take, take charge of your own psyche, number one. Sort out your own head first. If you want to be a happy South African, sort out your own head first. And once you've done that, figure out how you can help somebody else. So there are too many problems. This thing is too big for us to actually, I can't go and sort out the education system. But what I can do is sort out my own head and figure out what it is that I want to leave as a legacy for my kids and I can help my kids with their education. And I can take it for one step further and help my kids to understand helping somebody else in education or finding somebody else who isn't as privileged and helping them through their education. It's those tiny little ripples of, uh, I know you were at a golf day yesterday, tiny, mighty. Uh, those tiny little things make a difference. And I think on average, we as South Africans love to complain and do stuff all, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's your cancer right there. You want to make a difference in this country? Sort your own head out first. Figure out how to be positive. Figure out what makes you happy and how much happiness you actually have in your life and spread it. I love that, Richard. It's been amazing having you in studio. Um, you, you are really the guy that I thought you were on social media, which we started off the conversation Thank saying you. that. And I, I've just realized that I'm, I'm so blessed to be able to follow you. With Ditto. Um, ditto. Yeah. And so, nah, this, is, this, this is not about me. No, it's mad respect. You. Mad respect. If people do want to follow you, if they want to mm. watch your YouTube channel, if they want to find you on Twitter, where do they go? Okay. So unfortunately, the Facebook thing, I'm fighting with Facebook to try and change the Richard Wright profile is full, but I am Richard Wright. I underscore M underscore Richard Wright, one word. Um, please go and follow me there. I actually share every single thing I post on Facebook, I put there. And Instagram is the same thing. I am Richard Wright. And then my website, everything on my website, and that's IamRichardWright.com. Please come and interact with me. I'd love it. Come and spread some love and some good stuff. Find your now happiness and then share it. I'm leaving you with that today. Wishing you only good things. I'm Brendan DeCue, South Africa's very own Good Things Guy. And you've been listening to Good Things Guy, a jackpot podcast. For more episodes or to subscribe, rate or review my podcast, go to iTunes, Iona FM or Google Podcasts. Be kinder than necessary to yourself and each other. Thanks and only good things. <laughs>